You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Happy hump day, folks. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Texas readies more trucks in preparation for virus death surge. California sees 11,000 new virus cases, its second biggest jump. And hospitals are now redirecting COVID data to HHS in a move to streamline. We've got a lot to get through. None of the news. The news is looking Uh, Pretty, pretty grim. Pretty, pretty grim. But we will get through it with our all-star team. I'm going to bring you my exclusive interview with Senator David Perdue, a Republican from Georgia. And we'll check in with John Sidalides and former Congressman Patrick Murphy, our all-star panel. Jordan Fabian will kick things off for us. He, of course, is on Bloomberg's incredible White House reporting team. Lots together, including the U.S.-China front, and that's where we begin. Jennifer Jacobs, my colleague, reporting exclusively, Donald Trump ruled out more sanctions on Chinese officials for now, people familiar said, even as the U.S. took more steps to constrain Huawei. White House aides created a list of targets, including Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam and Vice Premier Han Zhang, before Trump decided against it in a sign he wants to avoid escalating tensions further at this point. But Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced new visa restrictions for some Huawei employees in a mostly symbolic move. Jordan Fabian's been out front of this story. He, of course, is also a Bloomberg White House reporter. Jordan, what do we know in terms of where this conversation geopolitically is headed? Well, certainly the U.S. and China seem to be only escalating tensions at this point, although uh, from what our colleagues are reporting today, it does seem that the president uh, might not have such an appetite to escalate even further. But he is being pushed in that direction by a number of people inside his administration, uh, named Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, uh, Matt Pottinger, the Deputy National Security Director, um, some vocal China hawks who have become ascendant in the administration in the, in the last few months as the uh, president's become increasingly angry at China for its handling of the coronavirus pandemic. 
So Jordan, as you as we try to navigate through this in the president's press conference yesterday, he tried to draw a contrast between himself and the Biden campaign as it relates to China. But this essentially is a tightrope walk that the commander in chief has to walk from his foreign policy strategy and also from his political strategy as an incumbent on the campaign trail and trailing significantly at this point in the polls. Yeah, of course, Kevin, you hit it right on the head there. He wants to portray this tough image on China. Uh, he said in the Rose Garden yesterday that no administration has been tougher on China than his. Uh, and he thinks that's a key message to his voters. But at the same time, uh, you know, they've, the administration has backed away from doing things that might really upset the financial markets or really escalate this uh, conflict with China to the extent that it could damage the U.S. economy. Uh, thinking also of a few days ago when our colleagues reported that the administration was considering undermining the Hong Kong dollar's peg to the U.S. dollar. That idea was swept aside uh, in part because uh, officials thought it would do too much damage to the economy. All right, we're going to talk more China coming up in my exclusive interview with Senator David Perdue, a Republican from Georgia, and of course with John Sidalides, uh, our geopolitical expert on this show. But let's pivot now to domestic policy. This Peter Navarro flap uh, with but he's attacking Dr. Fauci uh, in an op-ed. And then you've got now President Trump defending Dr. Fauci. What gives? Makes sense. What, what, are, they, what are you hearing? Well, what I'm hearing, Kevin, is that the Republicans would just hope that the White House would move on from this feud. They think it's counterproductive. They don't think that the top, uh, the nation's top infectious disease experts are being un undermined by the president or his aides. And they think that they, the president should be paying attention to a, you know, addressing the crisis and, and B, Joe Biden, his actual opponent in the 2020 presidential race, instead of picking feuds with uh, people within his administration. So, you know, it, but it, it comes at a time in which the president is really trying to reset in terms of the public perception of how he's handling COVID-19. What else are you hearing we're going to see coming from President Trump? Well, it's, it's hard to say, Kevin. I mean, the, the administration has really shied away on the coronavirus from uh, doing much of its own activities these days. They're really leaving it to states and cities to come up with their own policies. Uh, we we've, haven't heard so much from the administration about, for example, what, the, what their guidance is to open schools. We had a really kerfuffle last week when the administration tried to essentially undermine the CDC's guidelines of school reopenings, but we haven't seen uh, them put out anything themselves. So that's really generating a lot of confusion for state and local leaders, and some of them are blaming the administration's lack of guidance for the spike in cases, that they're not receiving the information they need to help get this under control. Our colleague Mario Parker asking Vice President Mike Pence uh, during a campaign conference call uh, about this, as, or, or rather Mario Parker on the conference call that the vice president was on for uh, the the campaign conference call, and he called Dr. Fauci a quote-unquote valued member of the coronavirus task force, quote, we couldn't be more grateful for his steady counsel, end quote, that according to Vice President Mike Pence. So it, it really is a remarkable uh, dynamic that has emerged with some members of the president's administration openly criticizing Dr. Fauci and others, including, of course, the vice president, uh, defending him. And, 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 and it's it's, you know, in many ways, I think, sort of an illustration of how the president conducts his administration where he doesn't mind having 
various viewpoints speaking out publicly and fighting it out, so to speak. It's remarkable. Uh, okay, the president was in Georgia today. We're going to hear a little bit about it from my interview with Senator Perdue up next. But, Jordan, why was the president in Georgia? Kevin, he was announcing a new move from his administration uh, that would to ease the approval of infrastructure projects like road and bridges, taking some environmental uh, reviews and, and updating those policies, making it easier to get those projects approved. Uh, you know, some might joke it's infrastructure week, but this is something that you know, the president has talked about for a long time, uh, trying to, I suppose, get the focus back on his policy and his agenda. In uh, a key swing state, I should, I should note, you know, a longtime red state, Georgia, now looking more purple, and the president is uh, making these official visits to certain states that are really key for his reelection. And he had a flourish at the end of his remarks there, uh, telling the audience, uh, you know, sort of saying the quiet part out loud, I am making this announcement in Georgia. You know, we have many special things on the way for you. So uh, really mixing his political and, and, uh, and policy messages there in Georgia. It's that time of year again. All right, that, or I should say it's that time of every four years. Again, Jordan Fabian, our Bloomberg White House reporter, breaking it all down for us. Up next, Senator David Perdue, who traveled with the president on Air Force One today uh, while they went to Georgia. That's up next. Uh, we talk foreign policy, China, infrastructure, whether or not Republicans are going to get on board for more disaster relief for American families. All of that up next. Download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple, iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Shout out to the Bloomberg Sound on team, Christine Barada, the executive producer, and Matthew Shirley, the executive guru, right here. There he is. There's the wave in the video chat. Uh, more next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Earlier today, folks, I caught up with Senator David Perdue, Republican from Georgia, before he stepped on board Air Force One with President Trump to travel to Georgia. And I asked him about the unemployment checks that are set to expire for millions of Americans in just a matter of days. Take a listen. The economy, as we begin the reopening, is creating jobs right now. We had, a, resi we had a, uh, a hindrance to uh, people going back to work, and that was a premium on the unemployment. That expires, and I believe a lot of people will then be go, begin uh, going in and absorbing those jobs that have been created. So that's number one. Number two, we're looking at it very carefully right now. We have another phase of, of aid that we may be uh, voting on even next week. That, will, that might include liability protection, some uh, funding or reprogramming of funding for possibly our, our smallest uh, towns and communities. And then we'll look at this, we're really looking at this unemployment uh, issue very seriously. And just to follow up on that, there are also concerns that states are underfunded. When I talk to governors, for example, they're very concerned that they might have to, be, they might have to start laying off or furloughing some federal and state workers. Is there any conversations that you're having that would provide some economic relief to the states in the next package? Well, I think you have to talk about states differently. It's hard to generalize about states because right. you have a group of states, small number, um, but they have been fiscally irresponsible. They've got huge retirement liabilities. 
And I don't think there's an appetite in the Republican caucus in the Senate anyway to uh, bail them out at using taxpayer dollars from those states who've been fiscally responsible, like my state of Georgia. In our state, we have a rainy day fund that's fully funded. Um, we have a balanced budget law, and uh, you know we don't have debt. So I mean, it's a very fiscally well-run uh, state. Um, I think there's some sensitivity here, though, about small towns and communities, even in our state, that need help. They've lost revenue. Uh, they got some aid coming from the, uh, the first round of package, uh, this package, but what we've really got to work on now is giving the governors a little more latitude to get aid down to them. There's still money available for that in the first round of this. You know, the president, when he talks about economic stimulus, one of the things that he mentions is infrastructure and potentially having infrastructure sometime in September or October to have this be voted on. You've got a plan in terms of infrastructure. How, what, what's in the plan and how likely is it to garner Democratic support? Well, first of all, you know, the president actually understands that to compete globally uh, economically, we have to have a world-class infrastructure here. Georgia is very blessed with that. We have the Port of Savannah, which is the third largest port in the country, the fastest growing, the most productive port. The president's actually flying down to Georgia today to make an announcement about how he's trying to clear away. He's, he's actually changing a rule uh, in the uh, government to allow a quicker turnaround for approvals for new construction of infrastructure. The funding of infrastructure is the debate, right? So we've got to find a way to use public-private partnerships to get these big infrastructure projects funded. The president broke a logjam after 20 years of trying to deepen the Port of Savannah just five feet. He broke that logjam, and we now have it funded, and it will be completed in the next year or so. So he understands the importance. You can't have a world-class economy without world-class infrastructure. Are you optimistic that infrastructure could get voted on by the fall? Yeah, but it'll be the the, the structure of that is still debate uh, in debate. You know, the president wants a big. He wants to go big, and I understand that. We are trying to digest right now $2.9 trillion of aid that we just approved and appropriated, which added about $3 trillion to our federal debt. That's, that's something that we've got to get serious about. But I am also considerate of the fact that we've got to make sure the economy continues to dig its way out of this um, shutdown. I mean, we shut the economy down. It's never been done before. We created 7 million new jobs in, in um, May and June. That's remarkable. It surprised everybody. If that were to continue, uh, we'll, be, we'll be digging out of this thing sooner than later. Let me follow up with you on infrastructure because it's not just, poor, it's not just bridges, it's not just roads, right. it's not just uh, getting, right. uh, cutting through regulatory red tape. It's also cyber. Yeah. You know, when you look at the developments as it relates to China and you being a member of Senate Foreign Relations, yeah. this, this has to include cyber, does it not? Well, it already does. I mean, since President Trump got in office, we've been working diligently uh, to get broadband to our rural communities. America has gone through 50 years of urbanization. I think we can see some of the ills of that right now. One of the great resources we have are our rural communities. The problem is they don't have access to broadband the same way our major cities do because of the economics of it. So the government has been moving on that. The president has been uh, very supportive of that. I know the Department of Agriculture in our state has several projects that are bringing billions of dollars of, of investment to infrastructure that will bring broadband to our rural communities. So that's, that's a big deal. As we learn coming out of COVID, telehealth, teleeducation, all that requires a broadband in infrastructure, and that's what we're uh, focusing on right now. And just one final question. Yesterday, President Trump signed into law a, a piece of legislation with bipartisan support that would allow for uh, the U.S. to really target from a financial perspective individuals who in the Communist Party who backed the so-called national security laws against Hong Kong. What other tools are at the United States' disposal in the short term to utilize to pressure China? 
This is a, uh, a new era in terms of uh, bilateral relationship between China and the U.S. I'm involved in that. I used to live in Hong Kong, lived in Singapore for a while, worked in China for many years. Uh, this is a complex equation. It's a great culture. It's 5,000 year uh, heritage. But uh, they've been acting nefariously here in the last uh, few decades as they've implemented the Belt Road Initiative, they're made in China 2025, they have a social credit score they've implemented on their own people. And in Hong Kong, you see that they're moving to reverse some of the individual freedoms that had been enjoyed in Hong Kong uh, all during the time that uh, the UK was in control. Actually, what China's doing right now is in violation of the agreement they had with the UK as they handed Hong Kong back over to China uh, back in 97. So this is a serious issue. Uh, I support the president, what he's doing, and this gives us an opportunity to, to deal with China uh, on some of the things they're doing to uh, reduce freedoms in places like Hong Kong. And more types of this legislation could be in the works? Well, we already have plenty of, of ways to do that right now, but yeah, there could be other legislation. But what we want to do is engage China on a level of mutual respect. I mean, that's what we've been doing in trade and, and uh, what the tra President Trump has been doing with President Xi Jinping. Uh, what we've been doing in terms of trying to uh, uh, incent them to stop the cyber war, uh, if you will, open up their markets, which they've done in the first round of our trade agreement. So we've had some monumental progress with China. We just have to get through this rough patch right now on what they're doing in Hong Kong and other places, as well as um, coming to grips with what just happened in the COVID-19 crisis. And I got to ask, dollar peg, should, should, it, should Hong Kong's currency be pegged to the U.S. dollar? Well, I think what we've done is we've taken away the uh, the relationship in trade and finance that we've had with Hong Kong because they were more of an autonomous entity. That was the agreement with the UK. The rules and changes that have been made in those rules by China over the last uh, really couple of years is changing that autonomous nature. And so we're dealing with Hong Kong now as more of a part of China with regard to finance and, and economic issues. That was my interview with Senator David Perdue, a Republican from Georgia. He was traveling with the president today while the president was in Georgia. And coming up, our panel reacts, former Congressman Patrick Murphy and John Sidalides. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Joining us on the line, two friends of the program, John Sidalides, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and diplomacy consultant to the State Department and former Florida Congressman Patrick Murphy. Let's start with Patrick. Patrick, what's going on down there in Florida? How are the cases? Are you all back on lockdown? What's going on? You know, it's still pretty open down here. Uh, it, it, People are starting to wear masks a little bit more, 
but it's still pretty open. Um, they've started to make some adjustments for restaurants sitting indoors versus outdoors, but it's a county by county, city by city situation. So, um, you know, Miami's been a little bit more stringent, and rightfully so. This has been really the epicenter of a lot of the cases. But you head north to Broward, Palm Beach County, and it's uh, business as usual. Uh, not, not a lot of precautions uh, being taken. All right. Meanwhile, what would what do you think? Do you think additional precautions need to be taken in terms of the the spiking cases? Because on the national media front, everyone's saying, "Oh, there's got to be more cases. There's got to be more cases." Yeah, I think there does. I think uh, you look at the countries that have successfully uh, kind of bent the curve and, and gotten over this. Uh, there have been national mandates, national leadership to wear masks, to social distance, to have uh, national testing, coordination, contact tracing, et cetera. Um, and I think you're seeing it with the private sector. You know, today's announcement that Walmart uh, and Sam's Clubs are going to mandate all stores, all people going into those stores have to wear a mask. Uh, you know, they've realized that the federal government's not going to, you know, take the lead, uh, that it's not working. they got to do it themselves. All right, John Sidalides, before we talk uh, U.S. and China relations, I do want to ask you in terms of uh, just what you think the, the White House needs to be doing. And we saw, of course, the Peter Navarro op-ed that was penned where he was critical of Dr. Fauci, President Trump walking that back, Vice President Mike Pence walking that back. Why is there this open discussion about the legitimacy of Dr. Fauci right now playing out in the press? Well, first, uh, the, the first question that you asked, Kevin, about the role of the federal government, I think, first and foremost, is to provide whatever support the various states and counties need to be able to deal with COVID on a county-by-county, county, statewide, or regional basis. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to this because there are a number of states, especially in the Midwest and the Rocky Mountains, that have nothing along the lines of what, you know, destroyed populations in New York, New Jersey, uh, other parts of the country. So there's no one size fits all, but I think it's very important to provide logistical support, equipment, uh, technical know-how and the like. And that's going to be critical. On the Dr. Fauci situation, you know, the question I've been asking myself for weeks, Kevin, is Dr. Fauci seems to have been giving statements on things that have really nothing to do with his portfolio, right? He's, uh, he's a disease specialist at the CDC, and yet he's been talking about hookup sex on smartphone apps. He's been talking about sports seasons and talking about a number of things that he really should not be talking about and just focus on his specialty. And I think that's where there's been some tension. And I've always wondered, why isn't the White House just asking him to stay focused on what he knows best and leave other subjects alone? But this issue with Peter Navarro is fascinating because I can't imagine he would submit an op-ed to USA Today without some type of approval but it's unclear as to whether or not he had gotten that. So there is a rift, and I don't know what it portends for Fauci's future and the CDC. All right. Patrick Murphy, I mean, from the Democratic perspective, Florida is such a crucial battleground state. Uh, Republicans, as of now, are going to have their con the Republican National uh, Convention in Florida. But from, from a swing voter battleground state perspective, Patrick Murphy, I mean, how does it play? I mean, is Dr. Fauci fully politicized right now or is he still trusted or what does this how are Democrats going to use this dis disagreement uh, uh, regarding Dr. Fauci in the general election? Uh, you can put him in the same bucket as, as masks. Uh, right? Masks have become a sort of political statement. 
uh, right, where Republicans and Democrats are going to fight over whether they're necessary and whether you wear them or not. And the same thing's happening uh, with Fauci. Republicans aren't going to listen to him anymore, and, and Democrats will. And Democrats will, you know, continue saying that we should listen to experts and uh, people that have studied, you know, health and, and, and treatment their whole life and not, you know, bankrupt real estate developers, for example, uh, and their leadership on this issue. So it's, it's pretty, you know, easy battle lines being drawn here on listening to experts or not uh, on these kinds of issues. And, um, you know, I think this is going to be a very divisive campaign, you know, looking ahead, um, forgetting the culture wars and all that. But if masks become partisan, if experts and healthcare become partisan, we got a pretty big issue in our country. Yeah, you know, it really is remarkable, folks. If you're just joining us, John Sidalides and Patrick Murphy, two of the best in the biz, if I do say so. I saw the panel today. I thought, well, this is going to be easy. I can, t- <laughs> I can take a breath. Uh, John, okay, U.S. and China, let's get to, to foreign relations. You know, I spoke with Senator David Perdue earlier today, Republican from Georgia. He, of course, is on Senate Foreign Relations. You know, this is... and. and talking about the the Hong Kong legislation that the president signed into law, allowing him to do some sanctions on some of the officials in China who backed the so-called national security measures for Hong Kong. Our Jennifer Jacobs reporting tonight that on the Bloomberg White House team that, uh, you know, the president actually could have gone further and decided not to. Okay, so what else can he do? What is feasible? What's on the table that would have bipartisan support in the House and in the Senate uh, before the election, should the shenanigans with China continue to intensify? I'm going to look at this uh, in two ways, Kevin. Uh, first of all, as the congressman stated, we have enough issues that are quite polarizing in American politics right now. But there's actually a growing bipartisan consensus that we need to shift the relationship with China uh, in a very different direction than Democrats and Republicans together always the right way to approach China for several decades. And what I'm seeing right now, really because of China's belligerence, economically, militarily, diplomatically, is a a global landscape that's being rendered even more complex, uh, both by the economic recessions after COVID, but also the decisions that that China is taking that are then compelling this, I don't want to say unified, but I will say more of a consensus approach in Washington that we need to shift directions Now, there will be a healthy debate uh, about this, and this is going to be one of the dividing lines between President Trump and former Vice President Biden, because Trump is trying to already demonstrate that Joe Biden was, quote-unquote, soft on China during his career, and Biden will try to demonstrate that the president has failed in dealing with China realistically and sufficiently aggressively. But you're going to see a number of legislative measures, Senate uh, and House Democrats and Republicans coming together to check the... um, the the deceptiveness with which China has been engaged in listing its companies on U.S. markets and with its which has been trying to acquire distressed companies whose capitalization flattened out because of COVID. And Hong Kong and the Uyghurs, as you cite now, I mean, these were issues that we put on the margins because we weren't supposed to talk about China human rights so that we can help liberalize China. And now human rights in Hong Kong, the Uyghurs, the one million Muslims in Western China, and even the kind of aggressive activities against Taiwan and India are all now part and parcel of this new U.S. policy, sort of a whole-of-government approach. 
And I'll close on this, Kevin. He already had a major speech by National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien several weeks ago. Yeah. Last week, FBI Director Christopher Wray pointed out there are several thousand investigations of different China acts of malfeasance in the U.S. economy. And we'll probably have major policy speeches coming up from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and even Attorney General William Barr in the next two weeks to lay out where exactly the Trump strategy will be headed. Well, okay, let me follow up. And we've got like literally 60 seconds, but just not in a answer this in terms of a practical matter. You're saying that, you know, you're giving us the tea leaves. There's thousands of cases that are being investigated. You're saying that William Barr, Attorney General William Barr, could start to play a role in China policy? Wow. It's already been announced that he'll be giving a major policy speech from the attorney general's perspective, from the Justice Department's perspective. So this is going to be, as I said, a whole-of-government approach yeah, they're going in to dealing with the, the China challenge. Because they're going to beat him in the courts. And I go back to the, the, the speech that Secretary Pompeo gave, I, I believe, at the end of last year, where he was talking about um, you know, just the infiltration of the Communist Party and how, on a local level, the Chinese have tried to penetrate institutions of all kinds, including higher education and the like. All right, more next with the All-Star panel. John Sidalides. And Patrick Murphy, we got him off the fishing boat. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. I want to go fishing. I deserve a day on the Potomac to go fishing. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. All right, we're going to do this, folks. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Our guests on the program are Patrick Murphy, former Democratic Florida Congressman, and John Sidalini. Sorry, I don't know why I do that with names. I just can't help it. Uh, maybe it's because of the... Well, no, he's Greek, but I'm Italian. Geopolitical strategist, a trilogy advisors, and diplomacy consultant to the State Department. All right, my dad turns 70 next weekend, gentlemen. What should I get him for his 70th? birthday i can't get him a yacht patrick murphy so just don't even go there but you can go first what should i get my dad for his 70th does he like fishing golfing what are his hobbies so really don't golf murphy come on okay do i do i strike you as the type of guy who's on the golf course no i hustle you think i got here by by going <laughs> swinging clubs or whatever they do how do you keep score how does tiger woods keep score i'm kidding uh, no, but my dad always had this expression, Cirillis don't golf and Cirillis don't ski. I've already been skiing. I have been golfing once or twice. I like to say for my first try I was the best. Enough about me. What should I get him? He likes to grill. Get him a green egg. A, a green, green egg is a great grill. All right. You familiar with that? Uh, yeah, you know, I, you know, it was like Dr. Seuss, green eggs and ham. <laughs> The big green egg. Check it out. It's expensive, right. but it's a hell of a grill. All right. All right. If it's Patrick. If it's Patrick Murphy endorsed. Uh, John Sinolides, what do I get my dad for his 70th? Buy him a birthday card and write him a letter with about a thousand words telling him why he's your hero and the most important man in your life. Well, I could write a whole book on that. Um, and maybe one there day I go. will. I, uh, no, he is. It'll be a lot more enduring. He is the man. Okay, enough about Nick Sorali back in Delco. Let's go back to the news. It's time now for my favorite segment of the show, What's on Your Radar? Um, and I'm going to kick things off uh, because Barada, Christine Barada, uh, showed me this article that is on the Bloomberg terminal from uh, Gregory Corte called headline, Most Pennsylvanians Believe Their Neighbors Secretly Support Trump. New poll gives credence to Trump claims of the silent majority. 
Biden leads by 13 points in Pennsylvania, Mammoth University Bowl. Pennsylvania voters support Joe Biden by 13 percentage points over President Donald Trump, according to a poll released Wednesday. But a majority also believe that their neighbors secretly support the president and that Biden may still lose. Wow. So I guess my question to the panel, quickly so that I can hear your thoughts, but my question to the panel, people believe that the silent majority exists. Patrick, you go first. I can't deny that, right? I mean, I, I have that conversation every day with, with, with folks um, and getting them to admit uh, their support for whomever it is can be a little tricky. Uh, things become so divisive now, whether it's in your, your, your business or, or your family. Uh, people are a little bit, you know, sort of shy to talk about it often. So, um, you know, sometimes they're kind of judging the crowd and, and making their own public statement based on who's around them, not really how they're going to vote. So I, I, that doesn't surprise me at all. All right, I think Democrats should underestimate the impact of that. John Sidalides in Pennsylvania, Battleground, Pennsylvania, which Trump carried in 2016. Wow. People think that they're looking over their shoulders at their neighbors. Well, I agree with the congressman, Kevin. And look, the 2016 proved that there is actually, I mean, I don't know what we want to call them, asylum majority. I mean, they weren't the majority. They were a popular minority, but an electoral majority. Um, shy Trump voters, people who'd rather not be... Uh, castigated or marginalized in the workplace or in their respective social environments. But 2016 proved it. And that's why I'm very skeptical of the, the the precise numbers in the polling. I think the polls that we're seeing give us a general sense of trend lines that do favor Biden right now. And it could just be Trump exhaustion with a large number of voters. But I'm not interested very much in the popular polls sort of nationwide because they tell us nothing about the Electoral College. I'm looking at a map of my screen here, Kevin, and right now, fairly, if Biden has about 210 to 220 pretty certain votes, Trump about 115 to about 150, depending on whether you actually consider Texas a toss-up state, which I don't. But that still leaves about 170 toss-up uh, electoral votes in about 12 to 13 states. And the question really becomes, how many persuadable voters are out there? I mean, are most Democrats going to vote for Biden no matter what? And most Republicans are going to vote for Trump no matter what? Or are there maybe 10, 15 to 18 percent of the electorate that can actually be persuaded to vote one way or the other? That's, I think, what everyone's going to be focused on come September and October. But I think most of these people are really otherwise focused on economic lifelines, COVID, vacations in the summertime. And they'll sharpen their focus in September and October. So I'm not really worried about the polls right now either way. And whether or not the kids are going back to school. You know, I got to be honest, Jeff. Yeah, Gregory, huge. I got to be honest, that article on the Bloomberg Terminal, most Pennsylvanians believe their neighbors secretly support Trump by my colleague Gregory Corte. Got to tell you, Corte, you have ignited the politically diverse Sorali family text chain. The Sorali family. <laughs> we call ourselves Sorali's as a joke, which probably... No one understands, neither do I. But anyway, it's uh, it's lit, as the youth say. Okay, Patrick Murphy, what's on your what's on your radar? You know, I think it's uh, going to be interesting and and perhaps scary to see what happens when the government aid starts to subside. Yeah. Uh, not only for individuals but businesses. And there was a great article in Bloomberg today talking about. Uh, Edward Altman, uh, uh, an NYU professor, talking about the amount of bankruptcies, uh, you know, that are probably coming. We've had, you know, 30 major companies already file, uh, and they're expecting at least 60 by the end of the year. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. I think COVID-19 has sped up a, 
a massive change in society uh, away from perhaps the typical office, you know, more of the remote working, um, more technology, I think, uh, becoming prominent in, in our workspace, in our schools, in our individual lives, et cetera. Uh, so I think we're going to go through some major changes really quickly because of this. It really, that's a, that's a great one. And so many families right now, unfortunately, living uh, in, in, in a lot of economic anxiety, trying to figure out yes. where that's, that's going to yeah. happen or, or in the next couple of days. Uh, uh, John Sinalides, what's on your radar? Two quick things, Kevin, if you permit me. Uh, one is when we were talking about Attorney General Barr and China's strategy, is one of the issues he's going to be talking about the possibility of stripping China of sovereign immunity in the United States for the purpose of lawsuits filed by American citizens and American businesses against the Chinese Communist Party for the damage wreaked by COVID in the United States. So that'll be one interesting area, yeah. like we did with Iran and like we did with Saudi Arabia. Does China fall into that category? So we'll see what Barr is going to be talking about. And number two, again, China, because we can't stop talking about China, the revenge of Xi Jinping against Donald Trump's maximum pressure campaign against Iran, the announcement of a 25-year, $400 billion economic partnership between China and Iran. China gets deeply discounted Iranian oil for the next 25 years, and Iran gets $400 billion of Chinese investment in Iranian infrastructure, 5G through Huawei. Iran falls under the Belt Road Initiative and really gives the uh, Iranian leadership a lifeline that Trump was looking to extinguish with his maximum pressure campaign. Wow, that's a really good one. I could do a whole hour on that. John Sidalides, my friend, Patrick Murphy, my friend, thank you both so much for sharing the hour or the half hour with me. I, I really, really appreciate it. Uh, John Sidalides of uh, Trilogy Advisors, and of course, Patrick Murphy, the former Florida congressman, appreciate uh, all of your work on this. And did you see this? It just broke in the New York Times. Twitter accounts for Biden, Gates, Musk, and others are breached. The accounts tweeted that they would double payments in Bitcoin sent to a certain cryptocurrency wallet. Obviously, that is not true. But Shira Frankel reporting uh, out in the San Francisco Times Bureau that some of the biggest names in politics, entertainment, and technology, including Biden, Kanye West, and the names that I just mentioned, appeared to have their Twitter accounts hacked earlier today. That does it for me. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Shout out to Maruful. Matt, and of course, Barada for working on the show today. Charlie Vollmer as well. Oh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Let's just let that take it out. I'm Kevin Cerulli. Thanks for listening. More tomorrow. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.